So we are continuing this morning in our series in the book of Romans, and we've been looking at this incredible book for a little over a month now. And as we've gone through it, we've really identified Romans 1, verses 16 and 17 as sort of the theme of the book of Romans. It's kind of our theme verse as we're going through this book. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The gospel message laid out here in the book of Romans is that by faith, we can receive the righteousness of God as our own, that he imparts to us his righteousness if we come to him by faith. But the question comes in, why do we need this righteousness by faith? Why do we need God's righteousness? Why can't we use our own righteousness? And the answer is that we can't use our own righteousness because all of us are sinful people and we can't understand the depth of our own sinfulness without God's help. And we can't appreciate the salvation that Jesus offers without understanding our own sinfulness. And so for the last half of chapter one, all of chapter two and the first half of chapter three, we are reminded that we are sinners in desperate need of a savior. Over the last two weeks, Pastor Steve has taken us through chapter one and he's reminded us that God's wrath has been revealed to all those people who do not acknowledge him and that God gave those people over to the consequences of their desires. We looked last week at chapter one and I want us to just look again at verses 28 to 32 to kind of get the context. Romans 1, 28 says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And now this morning, we turn the page and we go over to chapter two, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through 16. And when we get to chapter two, the tables are turned a little bit. Because in chapter one, we were talking about all those people. We were talking about their debased minds and their sinful desires. But now when we get to chapter two, God's word's gonna directly speak to us and it's going to say, guess what? You are no better than they. Because you are no better than they. And while you are quick to judge all those people, the very fact that you're judging them is what actually will condemn you for doing the very same sins. And so chapter two is gonna lay out for us three facts about the judgment of God. Three facts about the judgment of God. First, the judgment of God is real. Secondly, the judgment of God is impartial. And third, the judgment of God is fair. So that's our outline for this morning. If you're a note taker, you can take these notes. Verses one through five, the judgment of God is real. Verses six through 11, the judgment of God is impartial. And then verses 12 to 16, the judgment of God is fair. And what we're gonna learn as we go through this outline is that each of us will be judged by God fairly regardless of our ethnic background, our religious heritage, or our social standing. 
So let's start with Romans chapter two, and we're gonna first see that the judgment of God is real. Let's look again at the first three verses of Romans two. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? I love how the New Living Translation translates verse one. Let me read, let me read verse one from the New Living Translation. It says, you may be saying, what terrible people you've been talking about, but you are just as bad and you have no excuse. When you say that they are wicked and they should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you do the very same things. I mean, after reading in chapter one, we, we read that big long list of all the things that those people do. And after reading that really long list, the original readers of this would have been in full agreement that God's judgment belongs on those people. Because in those days, there were Jewish rabbis and teachers who believed that because the Jews were God's chosen people, that they would not face the judgment of God on the last day. They supposed that they would escape judgment because of their ethnicity and because of their religious background. But you know what? The Jews are not alone in this. We are all happy to, put, to, to judge those people and we think today, like it's, well, it's because I go to church or because I recycle or whatever it is that somehow I'm going to escape God's judgment. And we do this all the time and we do it without even realizing it. Last weekend, my wife and I were driving uh, to the Ecclesia College retreat and we had to go over Santa Ann Pass. And I don't know if you ever, guys have ever been on Santa Ann Pass, but it is a windy two-lane road, super mountainous, really, you know, you have to take really slow curves and stuff. And as we're going over the, the pass, there's this guy in a giant pickup right behind me, this big pickup who comes right up super fast and he comes right up and he tailgates me. And I, I get irritated at tailgaters anyway, but this guy, man, he was right on my rear bumper. And I'm like getting really irritated. I'm like, dude, what is your hurry, you know? You can't go super fast around these corners anyway. Just get off my tail, you know? And I'm so indignant at this guy. And finally, we get to a spot where he can pass me and he goes around and he's just like, zoom, and he just zips right on past me. And I'm just like mad at this guy. Well, about 30 minutes later, I'm, we're zooming along and I come on this little Subaru that's like moving as slow as molasses, you know? <laughs> And, you know, you know, the sign says, you know, take this corner, take this corner at 35 miles an hour, 40 miles. This guy's like doing 20 around the corners. And I'm like, come on, dude, move it. Let's go. And maybe you should just pull over. And he does. He, it's like he heard me. He pulls over and he lets me zoom past him. And as I'm zipping past this little Subaru, I'm not even aware of my own hypocrisy. And I'm pretty sure from the laughter, I'm not the only one who's been in a situation like that because all of us have judged others for the very same things that we have done. And in passing judgment, we condemn ourselves. Jesus himself warns us of this in Matthew 7, verse one. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So why can we so easily judge other people and then somehow think that God is going to let us off the hook for doing the very same thing? 
Well, I think it's because when we judge others, what we're doing is that we are saying that we are on God's side. When we judge other people, we're making, putting a stake in the ground. We're saying, we stand for justice. We stand for goodness. And I can prove it because I've called out all of those people who do those things. And we think that when God sees us agreeing with him that all those people are terrible, that somehow then he's not going to hold us liable for the very same sins. And it's not just religious people who have a monopoly on being judgmental. I mean, certainly the church has its share of judgmental hypocrites. In fact, I'm one of them. But what we have seen is that as our culture has become increasingly post-Christian, it has actually gotten more judgmental. In today's cancel culture, we are judging people all the time. And, and we're judging people in real time to, to the point where I think we may be the most judgmental generation of all. In his excellent book, Digital Liturgies, Samuel James says this, as the importance of religion has decreased and expressive individualism has increased, the result has not been a culture-wide renewal of compassion, tolerance, and understanding. Instead, the social internet has documented a shame culture that digitally punishes and erases those who run afoul of its values. Samuel James goes on in his book to say, it's the very nature of the internet. It's, it's, how, the nature, it's how the internet was designed that's actually led to this cancel culture and to the rise of this judgmental attitude. James goes on to say, no one can watch social media without feeling a quiver of fear. What if those texts I sent, that joke I told, that relationship I misused, what if someone were to broadcast those things? This fear motivates us to join in the pylon, hoping that our virtuous display of indignation will persuade all onlookers that we, po that we can't possibly have any skeletons in our own closet. In other words, our judgmental attitude towards others is a way of virtue signaling that we are on the right side of an issue or a position. And by signaling that, we hope that no one will notice our own failures. And here's the irony. There are some of you in this room saying, you're right, those people are really judgmental. And in judging those people for being judgmental, we just prove that we ourselves are hypocrites. So the original Jewish readers needed to be reminded, and we need to be reminded that no amount of judgment or virtue signaling or righteous indignation is going to get us off the hook. The judgment of God is real, and it's real for each and every one of us. And yet we continue to deny the reality of our own judgment. And the, and the one of the ways that we deny our own judgment, one of our ways that we deny the reality of our own judgment is to presume upon God's kindness. To presume upon God's kindness. Take a look at verses four and five. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is a little bit of a challenging verse to explain because at first glance, it may sound like we can't count on God's kindness and God's forbearance and God's patience to forgive us. But we know that can't be the case because I mean, the whole message of the Bible, the whole gospel story is that God is a forgiving God. For example, look at what it says in Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So indeed, we do have a God who desires to forgive us of our sins. We have a God who's so rich in his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So then what does it mean to presume on God's kindness? Well, to presume on God's kindness is to take advantage of God's forgiving nature so that we can continue to sin without any remorse and without any fear of judgment. It's like when we think, well, you know, I shouldn't do this. I know it's wrong, but God will forgive me, so I'm just going to go ahead and do it. And we do that. And when we treat God's loving and patient character as a loophole so that we think we can get into heaven and still not have to give up any of our sin, then we are taking advantage of God's kindness. And we are disrespecting his steadfast love and his patience. And that's what presuming upon God's kindness means. And when we presume on God's kindness, it means we don't understand two things. First, we do not understand that God's kindness is meant to bring about repentance. God's kindness is not a license to keep sinning. It's not some loophole that allows me to keep doing that same evil over and over because I think that he'll forgive me about it. This kind of attitude is addressed later in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? No, God's grace and God's kindness is not an excuse to keep on sinning. It's a reason for us to grieve over our sin. It's a reason for us to feel deeply remorseful and to desire to turn from our sin. It's a, it's a reason for us to repent. God's kindness is there to lead us to repentance. Well, secondly, what we don't understand is that we don't see, when we don't see the immediate consequence to our sin, we somehow think that we have gotten away with it. But if we are unrepentant of our sins, we have not gotten away with anything. Rather, the word of God says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself. When we sin and we don't see the immediate consequence, that doesn't mean that God doesn't know or care about our sin. The lack of an immediate consequence doesn't mean that God is letting you get away with it or that somehow you've escaped God's judgment. Rather, what is happening is that we are slowly building up a reservoir of wrath that will break and come pouring down over us on the day of judgment. And God will not be mocked. God will not allow his kindness, his forgiveness, and his patience to be taken advantage of because the judgment of God is real. Well, not only is the judgment of God real, in verses 6 through 11, we see that the judgment of God is impartial. The judgment of God is impartial. Take a look at verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. 
We know that in this world, there are judges who render wrong judgments all the time. We see in the news of innocent people who have served sentences for something they didn't did, something they didn't do. And we've seen those who are guilty go free. But why is it that a human judge might render a wrong judgment? There's a couple of reasons I can think of. First, it could be that the judge does not have all the information. They only have partial evidence. And so years later, there's maybe some new DNA evidence or a, or a new eyewitness that comes forward. And with that new information, we discover that maybe that person was innocent when the judge said that they were guilty. The second thing that could happen is that the judge is just biased. It could be that the judge looks at someone's ethnicity or their back social standing or their background, and they become predisposed to think that someone is either guilty or innocent based upon their background. But that's not how the judgment of God operates, because the judgment of God is impartial. First of all, God makes his judgment based upon perfect evidence. Because God knows everything, there's never going to be any additional DNA evidence that overturns him. There's never going to be a, an unknown eyewitness that comes and says that the person is innocent when they were not. There's no hidden evidence. And he looks at the fullness of our lives with perfect knowledge when he makes his judgment. And so verse 6 says, he will render to each according to his works, and he will do it with, with impartiality. Because God has full knowledge of everything we have done. And then it says in verse 7 and 8 that there's two possible outcomes from this evidence. Verse 7 says that those who seek glory by persistently doing good, they will go to eternal life. But those who seek their own glory and reject truth and follow evil, for them there will be wrath and fury. Now you may be hearing this and you might be asking, isn't this contradictory to some things that we read elsewhere in Scripture? Because in verses 7 and 8, it sounds like that there is salvation by works. That if you do good, it says, you will get eternal life. But the Bible says also very clearly that we cannot earn our salvation. So how are we to reconcile what it says here in Romans 2 with, with a verse like Romans 2, 8 and, or excuse me, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, so what's going on here? How, how can we look at verse 10 that says, glory and honors for everyone who does good, at the same time we know that there's nothing good that we can do, that our salvation isn't from works? Well, Bible scholars have one of two different ways that they tend to lean on how they explain this. Some Bible scholars say that what is being developed here is a hypothetical case. That is to say, if we were able to do good all of the time, if we were seeking God's glory in every moment of our life, then, then hypothetically, we could earn eternal life. But it's hypothetical because no one can actually do that. Other Bible scholars think that what's being talked about here is that when those who have, who have trusted in Christ come to Christ, that we are united with him and his righteousness becomes our righteousness. And because we have the righteousness of Christ, because we're clothed in his righteousness, we now have the capacity to do good. And that's what he's talking about here. Romans 8.3 talks a little bit about this. It says in Romans 8.3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words... We are saved by works. They're just not our works. They're Christ's works. But those works have been given to us. 
And that's what maybe he's referring to here. I wish we had time to unpack Romans 8, 3. We're going to have to wait until we get to Romans 8 to really unpack that verse. But, but whether or not this is that hypothetical case or whether or not we're talking about here the good that we do because we're united to Christ, in either case, it's very clear that Romans is not saying we can earn our salvation. In fact, the, the point of this passage and the point of this chapter and the point of the first, first quarter of the book of Romans is indeed we can't earn our own salvation. And so what the point, the point that he's trying to make here is that God's judgment is impartial because God is judging us based upon the perfect evidence that he has about our lives. Well, secondly, God's judgment is impartial, not just because he knows everything, but also because he is not biased. Take a look at verses 9 and 10. Here in verses 9 and 10, he talks about the outcome of those who do good and evil, but he does it in reverse order, and then he puts a twist at the end. Did you notice that? It says, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek. And then he says, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also for the Greek. And then he states the point about as plain as can be in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. We are all judged by the same criteria, regardless of our ethnicity, our religious heritage, our social standing. So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or Asian or Hispanic or Native American. Your ethnicity will not be taken into consideration when God renders judgment. It doesn't matter if you've been to church all of your life or if this is the first time you've been to church. It doesn't matter if you've memorized whole books of the Bible or if you've never looked at your Bible because your religious heritage will not be considered when God renders judgment. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. Doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat or a duck or a beaver or a boomer or a millennial or a Gen X, Y, Z or whatever the next generation is. Your social standing, your generation, none of that will be considered when God renders judgment. Because as it says in verse 11, for God will show no partiality. Each of us is going to be judged fairly regardless of our ethnic background, our religious heritage, and our social standing. Now, at this point, the original readers, though, may be questioning whether or not that's true. Is God's judgment really impartial? Because, I mean, don't, don't the Jews have an inherent advantage over the Gentiles? Because when we read the Old Testament, we knew that the Jews are God's chosen people. And God gave them the law. So they've got the benefit of knowing what God's expectations are, and the Gentiles don't. The Greeks and the Gentiles didn't have that benefit. They don't have the benefit of the heritage of, of Abraham and Moses and David. They don't have the law to tell them what God requires. So doesn't that put the Gentile at an inherent disadvantage when it comes to God's judgment? How, how can the Gentiles be held to a standard that they don't even know because God did not give them the law? Now, that's a common objection even to Christianity today. It's not stated in terms of Jews and Gentiles. But we'll often hear the objection that says, what about that person, that's this hypothetical person in a jungle who's never heard about Jesus? Is God going to hold him accountable to a gospel that he's never heard before? And the answer to this question is found in verses 12 to 16, as we make our final point. And that is that the judgment of God is fair. The judgment of God is fair. And the fairness of his judgment is demonstrated in two ways. First, the judgment of God is fair because it's not having the law that matters, but it's obedience to the law that matters. 
Take a look at verses 12 and 13. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 12 is saying that God will judge people by what they know, not by what they don't know. For those who have the law, God will judge them by the law. For those who don't have the law, God will not judge them by the law. Because it's not having the law that matters, it's obedience that matters. And that's what it says in verse 13. It's not the hearers of the law, but the doers of the law who will be justified. To put it in our context, if on the day of judgment, you go before, you go before the Lord in judgment and, and you show him your, your beautiful leather-bound Bible with your name embossed on it, and you say, see this Bible? You should let me in, Jesus. Is that going to work? Maybe you say, maybe you quote some memory verses that you learned and you can like quote whole chapters of the Bible. Is that going to get you into heaven? No, because it's not what you have and it's not what you know, but it's what you've done that matters. That's why in James 1.22, it says, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So in fact, the Gentile who does what is right, even though they don't have the law, would be justified. But the Jew who has the law, but doesn't do what is right, would be condemned. So the judgment of God is fair because it's not having the law that matters. It's obedience to the law that matters. Secondly, the judgment of God is fair because Gentiles have a sense of right and wrong, even though they don't have the law. Take a look, starting in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. When someone who does not have God's law does what is right, it says that they are acting in accordance with what is called the law of nature. It's a law that God has written on their hearts. So what does that mean? What's, what's the law of nature? What is this law written on their hearts? What, what's he talking about when he's talking about conscience? Well, the concept of conscience was something that the Greek and Roman philosophers had talked about long before Christianity spread to the Romans. And these philosophers viewed the conscience as sort of the courtroom of your mind, that there's this courtroom going on where your behavior is being constantly being evaluated in your own mind, and you're constantly being either being acquitted or convicted of what you have done. And the basis of that self-judgment is an internal standard that you have of right and wrong. And that internal standard is called the natural law. And it says here that that is written on our hearts. Now, some people will deny the existence of the natural law. And they'll deny that there is such a thing as conscience. And they'll deny it by saying that because everybody has a different sense of what's right and wrong, there can't really therefore be any natural law. And it is true that everyone has a different sense of right and wrong. You don't have to look around our culture to realize that very quickly. But belief in a conscience doesn't mean that everyone has the same standard of right and wrong. Belief in a conscience doesn't mean that everyone has the same standard of right and wrong, but it does mean 
that everyone has some standard of right and wrong, even if it's imperfect. And although our conscience may not match up with God's perfect law, our conscience still accuses us. In other words, we can't even live up to the own internal standard of right and wrong that we feel, let alone some external standard that God gives through his law. And that's the whole fallacy of the you-do-you mantra. That's the whole fallacy of, you know, just follow your heart because we can't even follow our own heart well. And if you need evidence of that, how many of you have already broken your New Year's resolution? Follow your own heart. You can't even do that. So our conscience may be imperfect when judging what is right and wrong, but our inconsistency in living up to even our own standard makes us accountable to God for our choices. We don't need the law to know that we are imperfect sinners. Our own conscience accuses us. Bible scholar Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, with incredible discernment, God judges those lacking his word by how well they live according to their sense of right and wrong in the heart. But to be sure, all still fall short. Nobody measures up even to our own moral perceptions, and, but nobody will be able to accuse God of being unfair in his judgment. Yes, the Gentiles don't have the benefit of the Jewish law. And there are people today who have never heard the gospel, but God's judgment is fair. He will judge them according to what they know and what they do not know. But we cannot, but we cannot live up even to the standard of our own conscience. And our own conscience bears witness of the judgment of God against us. So then, we've concluded that the judgment of God is real. That the judgment of God is impartial. The judgment of God is fair. So what hope does that leave for any of us? If we know God's law, we're condemned by God's law. If we've never read the law, then we stand condemned by our own conscience. So how then can we ever be saved? How can we ever be in right relationship with God? Well, that question doesn't get answered until the last half of chapter three of Romans. So you've got a couple more weeks to have to wait for that, but I'm, I'm not gonna make you wait that long. I'm not gonna make you wait till we get to chapter three because there's a hint of it here in verse 16. There are two things mentioned almost in passing in verse 16 about the judgment of God that gives us a glimmer of hope. And the first is that the judgment is part of the gospel. Did you catch that in verse 16? It says, according to my gospel, God judges. Now, the gospel means good news. So how can judgment be good news? Well, that sounds like bad news. But we cannot understand the good news of salvation until we understand how desperately we need that salvation. And the more we recognize how desperate we are, the more the gospel becomes good news to us. You see, left to ourselves, we all deserve condemnation. But the gospel message is that Jesus took that condemnation on himself when he died on the cross. And in Romans 5, 8, the gospel message says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 6, 5, it says, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But we cannot receive this redemption. We cannot receive this resurrection until we first acknowledge that we are guilty. And Jesus makes that point in a story that he tells in Luke chapter 18. In Luke 18, starting in verse 10, Jesus tells this story 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. The Pharisee in this story is like those in Romans chapter two who judge other people, even though they do the very same things. And through his judgment of others, he's actually condemned himself. But this poor sinner who cries out, God, have mercy. He's the one who will be saved. And that's why in verse 16, it says that the judgment of God is part of the gospel because we can't understand the good news of salvation until we understand how desperately we need the mercy of God. Secondly, verse 16 says that Jesus is the judge who will render judgment. It says God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself affirms this in John 5, 22. For the father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son. Do you understand what good news that is? That it is Jesus who judges? Because if you are a follower of Jesus, then your judge is also your savior. And he's not just your judge, he's your defense attorney. Look what it says in Romans 8.33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is inter indeed interceding for us. If you have accepted Christ as your savior, he intercedes for you on judgment day. He's your defense attorney. And for those of us who have repented of our sins and we have put our trust in Christ, the day of judgment will be a good day. Because when we stand before the judge, we will be standing in the presence of the one who gave up his very life for the forgiveness of our sins. In the words of the songwriter, Michael Card, to be so completely guilty and given over to despair, to look into your judge's face and to see your savior there. Praise be to the Lord who will judge us not according to our sin, but according to the righteousness that he has bestowed on us through his grace through the faith that we have in him.